This is The Guardian. I'm Jane Lee and this is The Full Story. Australia's unemployment rate is at a record low and employers can't find enough staff in industries like education, nursing and agriculture. We have a teaching workforce at the end of their tether. We have nurses who cannot work the double and triple shifts that they have been pulling for the last three years. Australia will start accepting 35,000 more migrants each year to try to fill some of these gaps. But Australia is just one of the many high-income countries competing for skilled workers right now. And unions are pushing for better working conditions for migrants who are already here. So will raising the migration cap be enough to fill Australia's skills shortages? Today, an economist and a migrant discuss what Australia has to offer skilled workers. It's Tuesday, the 13th of September. Gabrielle, what impact do you think raising the migration cap could have for Australia's economy? So I think it allows a whole bunch of people to stay in the country, which is good. Gabriella D'Souza is an economist specialising in immigration. Keeps people spending in Australia, probably gives them a lot more certainty about the future as well. So they might be more willing to make, you know, housing decisions and investment decisions if they know that they're going to be able to stay here. So that, you know, adds to the economic activity, you know, hopefully we'll get like a a whole bunch of really skilled people who have a broad experience of having worked overseas and in their professions. And so hopefully they'll bring that knowledge and that know-how and that experience and those skills to the country. The previous Morrison government cut the permanent migration cap in 2019 one year before Australia shut its borders in response to the COVID pandemic. Gabriella says that Labor's decision to lift the cap has been in the works for some time, but she thinks the government's plan to speed up visa processing is more significant because this will help clear the backlog of people currently waiting for their visa applications to be decided and allow more migrants currently on temporary visas to settle in Australia permanently. It is something that we should respect in terms of people wanting to make that decision quickly and wanting to, you know, evaluate what their other options might be if Australia is not an option for them. So lifting the permanent migration cap is designed in part to solve some of the urgent skill shortages that Australia is facing in fields like nursing, engineering and agriculture. How far do you think raising the cap could go to solving these shortages? I think it will help to some extent, but I think we need to look carefully into these occupations and see why it is that people don't want to do them, right? Are they low paid? Should we be increasing the wages in that area? A lot of those workplaces are not that great to work in. You know, a lot of those people are overworked. So there's a range of different things that we can improve about some of those occupations that we really need to take a harder look at and just you know, make sure that they are good jobs, that they are jobs that people will want to do and will train to do. So is the short answer that you don't think raising the migration cap in and of itself is going to magically resolve the skill shortages that we're facing? Yes. You know, it takes a while for people to make the decision to be able to move to Australia. Like if we're expecting a sudden influx of people who've already packed their bags and, you know, made lease decisions or housing decisions in their home country and decided to like, plonk themselves into Australia, like that doesn't happen overnight. It's a huge process to give up your life in one country and take it to another. 
Uh, so my name is Benin Murithi. I am 44. I am originally from Kenya in East Africa, and uh, I am a communications professional. I am a mom to one and currently living in Australia. And can you tell me a little bit about what your life was like in Kenya and a bit about your work experience back home? So my life back home obviously was surrounded by family, friends. I had a career going. I used to work as a communications consultant. I had 15 years experience as a communications professional. So I had worked for companies, for profit companies, as well as for not-for-profit companies. In 2017, Benin decided to leave Kenya with her son. The reason that came about was because I met a former classmate from uni who had moved to Australia with her family. And just speaking to her in terms of security um, and safety, uh, Australia was it for, for them. Australia is known for its world-class education system. The quality, not just at university level, but also the pr- primary and, and secondary system of education in Australia is top-notch. And I thought, wow, um, Australia does not have limits, you know. He can come and be whatever, you know. He Most kids, you know, at that age and, you know, will say, oh, they want to be pilots, others astronauts, others, you know, all sorts of things. And I thought those are professions that, you know, um, he can easily get into uh, if he's in Australia. So, yes, that, that was something that was a pull for me in sort of thinking why not try getting into that process of applying for skilled migration? And so did you consider any other countries when you when you were thinking about leaving Kenya? Was Australia the only country that you considered going to? No. So after she told me that, um, I actually asked her how she did it, how they moved here. And so she mentioned that uh, she had used an agent, a migration agent. Uh, so I went, I you know, like I booked some time with that agent and, you know, went to chat them up. Uh, and they told me that, you know, Australia is not the only country that has this program. There is Canada. And then, you know, I, I didn't know anyone who, who'd moved or relocated to, you know, Canada. But, mm. you know, the more they talked about Canada, the more I thought, no, I think Australia is it for me. Because in terms of the environment, the climate, the weather, Australia is closer to uh, the weather in Kenya. And then mm-hmm. in terms of just the process, uh, it sounded as if um, Canada's process was longer. I, Australia's process at the time was pretty straightforward. And mm-hmm. so I thought, no, uh, Australia is it for me. And obviously, given that I had someone who'd done it and was living in Australia, it just became the automatic choice. Australia is now competing with other high-income countries to attract skilled migrants like Benin. And Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill says that we need to do more work than ever before to make this happen. Now, in order to build a migration system for the future, we are all going to have to make a big shift in our thinking. And that shift is moving away from a system which is almost entirely focused on how we keep people out to one that recognises that we are in a global war for talent. For the first time in our history, Australia is not the destination of choice for many of our skilled migrants. 
those best and brightest minds who are on the move around the world, they are looking to live in countries like Canada, like Germany, like the UK, and those countries are rolling out a red carpet to welcome them in. It was really good to hear from the Jobs and Skills Summit, the likes of the Minister of Immigration and Home Affairs acknowledge that there is what is now called a global war for talent. You know, migrants have options and that's great, but we want them to choose Australia. We want them to find this place to be a good place to live, a good place to work, and somewhere where they feel like they can build a life for themselves. Benin arrived in Australia with her son on a skilled migration visa in 2018. At that time, her occupation as a public relations professional was on Queensland's list of skilled occupations, which is designed to fill the state's critical skills shortages. So she received state sponsorship, which helped her achieve the number of points she needed for her visa. So they score, obviously, your experience, your education, your age, the younger you are the more points you get, like you score in the age language. So in my case, Swahili, so I got a state sponsorship. And when you get a state sponsorship, that it adds to your points. Yeah, then I was invited. I was invited now to apply. And that's how I got myself here in Australia. I mean, it's a huge move to leave your country, to leave everything you know behind, to go to a new country. Before you left Kenya, Did you have any expectations of what it might be like transitioning to life in Australia as a new migrant? I'd say yes and no. Yes, in the sense that uh, I knew that once I get here, uh, in terms of um, settling in, I had the benefit of my friend who lives here. Then in terms of no, I didn't know about, obviously, the transitioning to finding work. I had expectations that, you know what, um, given that I'd gone through the process of the skilled migration, I knew, oh, the government is aware, you know, they, they know that I am qualified, I've, I'm well-trained, my experience speaks for itself. You know, so I had this expectation that, you know, once I land here, my work would just be going online, looking out for jobs and just putting in my application. So Mm. yeah, that's what I thought life would be in Australia. So as you said, you came in the middle of 2018. How long did it take you to find a job? I started looking immediately, like uh, just applying, going online on SEEK, looking for opportunities in public relations. So it took me a bit of time before I actually landed like a role. So I made do with what was available. I did uh, a number of things. So at some point I started with farm work. So I was working, you know, in a strawberry farm, picking strawberries, but that I didn't do for long. Then I also was an Uber Eats driver. So delivering food. I also worked as a waitress. Then also was um, worked uh, for a cleaning company. And then how long did it take you to find your first professional job? Oh, that took long. I only got a communications role last year. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes, yes. So it took Benin three years to find a job in her field in Australia. She now works for an NGO focused on multicultural communities. How did it feel at the time knowing that you were on a skilled migration visa, but you just weren't managing to land any jobs for so many months? 
Yeah, so of course, uh, self-doubt, that was the first thing. It mm. knocks your confidence and you feel, is my experience even real? <laughs> you know, for, for me not to land a job, that was number one. Number two, there was also thoughts of me saying, I can't continue like this. Uh, mm. I'd rather just go back, you know? And of course, uh, in terms of finances, you know, you come with your savings and obviously the, the, the jobs that you first do just to survive and to pay bills, they don't pay as much. It was frustrating. So, yeah. And then obviously the standard of life is different. It's very expensive here in Australia. So when you start like an, as a new migrant, it's natural to convert currencies so I'd look at my savings, convert, and I'm like, are we going to survive, you know? I was constantly worried. And do you know other people who've come to Australia on skilled migration visas who've had similar experiences to yours? Yes, I have lots, lots of friends who've had similar, if not worse. I know of a family that came. They had sold their family home, came here, and this person a pharmacist who had like businesses, you know, well-respected. They packed and left. They went back. <laughs> and others who've stuck it out. What kind of roles did they have to work in? I know someone who was a financial analyst. So he works at an aged care facility as a nurse. There is another family uh, I know. They have had to pack the idea of being employed. So they started businesses. So, and then obviously there are those who are Uber drivers, there are those who are interpreters. Yeah, so just doing what you can uh, to survive. You know, we also know that many migrants find it difficult to find work in Australia for long periods, despite their qualifications and their experience. And a recent report from the National Skills Commission showed that even in the engineering industry, where there's currently a skill shortage, almost half of migrants that are actively looking for work as an engineer are currently unemployed. So what do you make of this? Uh, not surprising. In 2020, I released a report with CEDA that looked at skills mismatch in the labor market among skilled migrants. And it was something like 25% of skilled migrants um, were working in a field or in a skill level that was below what their occupation list selection was. So, you know, we had a whole bunch of people who might've done engineering degrees or biochemical degrees that were now working in um, jobs that didn't require that. To me, 25% is really high. And one of the main reasons why migrants say that, you know, they don't have the jobs that they want is because Australian employers place a huge emphasis on local work experience. That is by far the biggest reason. Yeah, I mean, Engineers Australia's CEO, Romilly Madhu, said that they think that organisations are actually biased against migrants. What do you think of that? I think that is a fair cop. I have heard of instances where, you know, people have had to change their names uh, on their resumes. So I have tried <laughs> an experiment. So I have like four names. So my second name is very, how do I say, when you like shorten it, it's very Anglo, you know, like Anglo sounding. <laughs> 
Okay. What is what's what is your name? What's the second name? Penny. So I it's shortened to Penny. Even back home, most people call me Penny. So I found that you know when I'm asked which name do you prefer, and I say Penny, the reception mm. is different. It's more familiar because many. People. I've met so many pennies. It's very familiar, you know, uh, in the Australian yeah. context. So Andrew Lee actually did this really fun paper where he they sent out a bunch of resumes with foreign sounding names and then with, you know, anglicized names. And obviously the anglicized names just got way more callbacks. So it's, you know, even just at that like basic filtering stage, you know, we see some of these biases play in, but it's really hard for for the government to really do that much about that. You know, it really is businesses that need to just do better and understand that there are other skills that people bring to the table. Um, Working in different cultural environments is really good. Benin also found that Australian employers didn't seem to recognise her African qualifications, which was yet another barrier to finding a job. Sometimes, or rather most times, our qualifications don't automatically convert. So you have university qualifications or education, but it doesn't convert. The perception mostly is that the quality is not... Uh, at par with Australian education. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's also some <laughs> a challenge right there. Even at work, you know, you can go to, you, you, get, you get into this job. And so the hiring manager is not necessarily the person you'll be working day to day. You're working with other teammates, you know, team members, and you'll find someone just testing you, like <laughs> testing you just to see... <laughs> do you even know this particular thing (laughs) that you're doing? So the thing is, you have to prove your worth or, you know, upskill. There'll probably be a lot more migrants coming to Australia over the next few years, including skilled migrants like yourself. What would you tell them if you had one piece of advice or something that they might take from your experience? What would it be? I really had to quickly get realistic. So in my role, or rather in my field, uh, there are people who are also applying for the same job. It's not just me, you know. I am competing because yeah. you you come and, you know, for the first time in my life, you are the minority, really. <laughs> you know, because it can bog you down when you start thinking, you know, I'm being denied this opportunity because of my race. So I had to do a mind shift. So so when you land here, just, you know, uh, one do whatever you need to do uh, to, of course, support yourself, but just mm. to also get the local experience. And number two, trying to get into like activities, like, of course, not paid ones, because that time you're trying to save. But if you have children at school, maybe, you know, during pick, drop off or pick up, you know, try and make small yeah. talk even at the school, because that helps. Economist Gabriella D'Souza says that it's finding that kind of support, which is one of the biggest challenges for new migrants. One of the big ones that we don't often talk about is just how difficult it is to bring family to Australia. So, you know, when we think about what makes for a good migrant experience, we need to also consider the fact that a lot of these migrants, by virtue of points test system, are highly skilled and sometimes they're single a lot of the time. So, you know, you're asking a lot for a person to leave behind their entire social network and their entire family base in another country to make your country home and then, you know, making it increasingly difficult to be able to see their family 
um, which obviously was the case definitely during COVID and has kind of continued on even now. You know, you've kind of got to make it worth their while if that's the case. You've got to allow them to be able to see their family, to bring their family here for periods of time. You know, I'm not talking about permanent residence. I'm not talking about being a drain on the welfare state. I'm talking about not having to apply for a series of tourist visas to be able to see your own parent. We know unions are pushing for a range of conditions for migrant workers to be improved. That includes a major increase in the minimum wage for foreign workers and abolishing visa conditions that tie them to a single employer. What do you make of these types of conditions and what do you think could change now? Looking at the visa restrictions is a really important one. As an economist, we're taught to think about incentives and you know the incentives at play when you're tethered to an employer are really bad. You know, for example, even for international students on um, restricted working hours, you know, you work one hour above that and your employer now has the upper hand over you. So I think we need to look at those really carefully. The announcements before the skills summit about the unions wanting, you know, mandatory um, uh, membership, I thought was interesting. But if they are going to start helping migrants, they do need migration lawyers on staff. So they do need to make sure that that's the case because, um, you know, what works for um, an employee that's Australian is completely different to what works for a, a migrant. And, you know, we need to level the playing field. We need to bring those two groups to the same level so that there's no incentive to exploit one person over the other. That's what we really need to do. Next, what can Australia do to compete with other countries for skilled migrants? How attractive is Australia as a destination for skilled migrants compared to other countries? So a lot of countries did slow down their migration intakes, but a lot of countries didn't too. So, you know, we had Canada, for example, make a huge splash about how they were welcome to migrants all the way through the pandemic and committed to being at that high end of their threshold at about 435 thousand migrants. This was when Australia was like shortening down the list of occupations. So very, very different strategies. I think that's that's paid off for them. I think we've seen quite a few people choose to make Canada home over Australia. You don't want to be known as the country that can't get their act together when it comes to visa processing, right? Because other countries are doing it, but they're also making their places really welcoming. So the other thing that Canada and the UK and Germany does is that they have a really strong like civil education program around a lot of this stuff. So a lot of inclusivity training. And I think that also is part of what makes for a, a nice experience in a new country. So I do think it puts Australia at risk. I think we've we've taken it for granted a little bit that migrants will want to come here. But, you know, we, I think we do have to ask ourselves the question, you know, what are we offering to migrants? They do have other options. We do have to consider welfare of migrants in setting our migration policy, which sounds obvious, but doesn't seem that obvious given mm. some of our policy decisions. What could we be doing differently to attract more migrants to Australia? I think we need to change how we um, view migrants, less as a resource, more as a, a partnership even. We need more evidence-based policy. Um, we need better information coming from the department about what works and what doesn't. 
um, for migration policy, what makes for a better experience for migrants. I mean, what I'm hearing from you throughout this interview, as we've touched on different challenges with migration, is this constant running underlying theme, which is that Australia for too long has taken migrants for granted, particularly skilled migrants. And I'm just wondering if you have any views as to why that is. I think there's a view that no matter how restrictive we make migration in Australia, there will always be someone that wants to come here. And that might be true, but it matters who those people are and what they can offer and why they seek to come here. You know, I think if we do have a migration policy that we want to be selective about, we should be selective about it, but not to the extent that we make it so restrictive that we end up sidelining ourselves from people who we might really want to move here because they have other options for other places. I don't think part of the reason why it's become so restrictive is, you know, a fairly dim view of migrants in the eyes of Australian policymakers. One of the things that advanced Western economies are going to have to come to terms with is the fact that a lot of developing nations' economies are doing quite well. And they're starting to offer a similar, if not better, living standard than a lot of Western economies. So I do think there's a lot of things that we have to consider when it comes to that. And we have to be really careful about all the hoops that we make people jump through. Thanks to economist Gabriella D'Souza and Benin Marithi for their time. You can read more about Australia's skills shortages and Labor's Jobs and Skills Summit at theguardian.com. My colleague Peter Hannam also wrote about councils who say that people in migrant communities are suffering because there's not enough affordable housing in these areas. And they're calling for greater support as Australia raises its permanent migration intake. The article's called Increased Migration Must Come with Planning and Expanded Services, councils say. You can find a link to this article on the Full Story website. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria and myself. Sound design and mixing by Daniel Simo. The executive producers of Full Story are Miles Martignoni, Gabrielle Jackson, Molly Glassy, and Laura Murphy-Oates. I'm Jane Lee. Catch you next time.